Benadea Judith is a psychologist by training, a writer and workshop presenter by profession, and a visionary philosopher at heart. Her talent is recognizing patterns in the psyche, both individual and collective, and her claim to fame is her articulation of the Eastern system of the chakras as an archetype for wholeness and a template for transformation. Having spent 30 years looking at life through the lens of the chakra system, which has long been regarded as a path to personal evolution, she became aware of how this system offers humanity a potent map for our collective evolution. Dr. Judith's new book is Waking the Global Heart, Humanity's Rite of Passage from the Love of Power to the Power of Love. Welcome, Anadea. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. When I was telling people I would be interviewing you, they said, oh, Anadea is the chakra lady. Yes. How have chakras been useful to you? in your work through your life? Well, to me, the chakra system is a lens, and as you were just saying in the introduction, an archetype for wholeness. If we pattern our lives along this cosmic ordering system that's been laid into our nervous system, that's really evolved out of our nervous system and out of the natural world, then we have a very good chance at being whole. It covers the whole spectrum of human living, from our physical existence to our spiritual existence. It includes the mental, the emotional, the physical, the spiritual, the psychological, the creative, the relational self. It includes all these aspects. And so when I look at the system, which is about the evolution of consciousness, I see that it also applies to humanity as a whole. That's really, has anybody else done an application like this that you're aware of? No, not that I'm aware of. I'm aware of some books in progress. There's someone writing about the chakra system as related to technological progress. Right. So what happened when we got the printing press? What happened when we got radio? What happened when we got television and how that moved us into different chakras? Uh, that guy, that man's name is Stephen Vedro, and mm -hmm. he has a book in progress I've been reading uh, chapter by chapter, but I don't know of anything published that specifically puts the chakras on a cultural framework. Well, and you've actually applied it to a historical, yes. complete historical context that's actually significantly exhaustive. You had said you've been working on the book for 10 years. Well, easily 10 years um, off and on, but it was really a gleam in my eye 20 years ago. <laughs> And my first book, Wheels of Life, um, A User's Guide to the Chakra System, was about bringing the chakra system to the West. And my final chapter in that book was called Chakras in Evolution, in which I had already seen this pattern and the fact that the chakras lay on to history and that we are moving from the third to the fourth, really having had some arrested development and skipped over the fourth, and now we're coming oh. back. So 20 years ago when that book came out, this thesis was already in my mind. And, mm -hmm. and I spent a lot of time studying, thinking about it. I didn't actually start on the manuscript till about 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And then in the time of writing that, I did a few other projects in the meantime because I kept putting it down saying, oh, this is too much. I just don't know enough to write all this. Uh, this is too much research. The whole research. history of humankind. Yeah, I'll never finish this book. And I'm partly amazed that I actually did one day finish it. Well, I'm, but it's been with the support of a lot of people. But I just so much appreciate how much you've done in, in terms of how exhaustive it is uh, to lay the chakra system on a historical development of humankind from 
the dawn of consciousness to the present involvement with technology, the kinds of evolution that we're, we're dealing with. You also have a four-quadrant system that you entitle the static feminine, dynamic masculine, static masculine, and dynamic feminine. And you're, one of the things that you had talked about was how do we move into the dynamic feminine? Yes, that's the fourth of an archetypal valence mm -hmm. that has come through history, and it's the one that we haven't had yet, or that we're only just beginning to have. And that I saw how these um, Jungian archetypes of masculine and feminine, static and dynamic, also laid onto history. Okay. okay. And I think that it helps us to understand where we've been and what the next piece is. And what's going on at present. Yes, and what's going on at present. And so if you go two, four, six, and what's next, you know I'm going to say eight. And that helps you get there. So by establishing the pattern, people can see, okay, this makes sense. Now I have a road map. Now I know where to turn next. And I know that you're born under the constellation of Sagittarius. I am. Sagittarius is the constellation of the wounded healer. Oh. And is there something that you can tell us about your own process, about how you've come to this work to be able to heal humanity and their awareness? Well, I feel like I've been on my own healing journey all my life. Mm -hmm. And I have, I'm not only a Sagittarius, but I have cancer rising, which gives me oh. this kind of sensitivity. Yeah which has both its blessings and its curses. <laughs> the blessings is I can be more sensitive to subtle nuances, and the curse is that I'm more sensitive to things, and my body breaks down more easily, oh, and yeah. I'm more easily em emotionally wounded, perhaps, than some other people. I just take things really to heart. Oh. So I've really had a lot of my own work to do, and I've done lots of psychotherapy on myself, and I've really been an explorer in the healing field, in the consciousness field, in the psychological field for my whole life. And these are some of the things that you're bringing back to us then of the fruits of your explorations. Absolutely. And my training also as okay. a psychotherapist. Right. But I would say that despite going to graduate school and taking lots of workshops and courses and things like that, the most profound part of my training came from my own healing journey. Not what I learned in school, but what I experienced in terms of receiving therapy and undergoing the process. So what do you have to offer to us about how we can grow? Well, that is the question. And I look at this from the lens of a psychotherapist. And I look at it as if I was putting the culture on the couch. Mm. I think all we have to do is walk out on the street, look at the billboards, read the news, pick up a newspaper and see that our culture is not in a balanced place. We're not in a healthy, balanced, uh, yeah. psychologically well, thriving uh, state of being. And so I began to look at the culture through this lens, not only of the chakra system, but also psychotherapy. So I said, what if Western civilization came into my office and laid down on the couch and said, here I am, I'm in my adolescence, and I really believe we're in an adolescent state of development, and I make that point you know, quite thoroughly in my book. Mm -hmm. um, and here I am in adolescence, Western culture says to me, and I have addiction to chemicals, I'm destroying my environment, I don't get along very well with other cultures, I am male-dominated, and the women are all mad at me. I'm, you know, economically stressed, 
and you know I'm having all these problems I feel like I'm falling apart this is the kind of thing that a client might say to me and so in the healing process there is a delving into that person's history and anyone who has done psychotherapy knows that that's part of what a psychotherapist does is say well tell me who your mother was and what did she teach you and tell me who your father was and did you have brothers and sisters and how did they treat you and what were your experiences growing up that shaped your psyche so when we do this for western civilization and I really do keep it to western civilization we find first of all who was your mother well western civilization doesn't even know it says mother I know about founding fathers. Right, right. Uh, nobody ever said that there were any founding mothers. Hmm. Yeah. So I find out that this... Even archetypally, there's not that much access to mother, I suppose, other than in the Greek archetype of Gaia. That's right. And some people are dimly aware of that, and they're mm -hmm. dimly aware that people even use that for the planet as a whole uh, conscious organism. Mm -hmm. So I find out that my client didn't even know who his mother was. So we do a little research and we find out that his mother was slayed when oh, he was about yeah. two years old and he didn't even really know about it and it wasn't even slayed by his father. His older brother slayed his father and then stood on the dead body of his mother and proclaimed a new race, a new race of men that would live by the sword. Now is this... Is this Christianity or is no, this Greco-Roman? No, this is a, this is a Babylonian myth oh, that's right. called the Enuma Elish. Mm -hmm. And it was the story of Marduk, the god, and Tiamat, the goddess, yep. his mother, who he slayed and cut in half and stood on her dead and bloody body oh. with his sword and proclaimed a new race of order where the human's role was to be servants to the gods and to free the gods up from labor so the gods could be gods and we were their servants or their slaves. And that was celebrated every year at springtime for about a thousand years. And that was a real turning point in our culture. So I find out that this teenage civilization lost its mother when it was two, that didn't even remember her, later on wasn't even allowed to talk about her. And that his father raised the family single-handedly without any mention ever again of the mother. And that he looked at his father thinking that's the only way to deal. That's the only way to do life. And his father provided for this huge family by domination and conquest and acquisition of wealth. And he worked all the time and he was distant. Yeah. And he kept order in the family by laying down the law. The strict father model, actually. Yeah. The strict father model. Oh. I set the rules yeah. and you obey or you will get punished. So this I found something. out this was the framework for Western civilization's development. And it goes further. And so I say, well, with, you, with your father gone all the time and your mother not around, you know, what happened in the household, I say to Western civilization? Well, my brothers beat up on me all the time. First it started as little skirmishes, and then they got worse and worse. And in order to keep from getting killed, I had to learn, learn to fight myself. I had to armor myself. I had to spend time training as a soldier. I had to join an army with other brothers so that I didn't get beat up. And so I find that my client went through 5,000 years of sibling rivalry where the fighting got worse and worse and worse and more and more brutal. And that in order to do, endure this, my client, Western civilization, had to numb all his feelings. Oh my he goodness. had to separate himself from women. He had to be tough the way a young kid in a gang in a ghetto has be to be man. tough. He had to be a man. He had to reject the feminine. And he had to grow into this culture 
He had to grow into its adolescence with no mother, with no feminine, with nothing but getting beat up on. And when we look at it this way, it gives us a perspective on where we are, on what we're missing, and what we need to do to come into balance. Now, part of that process is grieving the past, grieving what we didn't have. Part of it is uh, thawing out our frozen feelings so that we can feel again. And out of all that, the heart begins to awaken and compassion begins to grow and a new sensitivity and a new consciousness. So how do we open our heart? What I found as a psychotherapist is that when I heard someone's story, my heart opened to that person for what they had been through. It, 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 it opened my compassion. And I knew that if that person were walking around at a party and no one knew them, they might think, oh, that person is so socially inept, or they're so rude, or they're so clumsy. They're dark, or they're growly, or whatever, yeah. Yes, and they wouldn't know the story. Mm -hmm. But because I knew the story, I would look at that person and say, it's amazing they're even at a party. Oh, yeah. Look at how they are managing to relate in spite of it all. Mm -hmm. And so there's something about knowing our story that gives us compassion and understanding. And that in order to go to the future, we need to get up to date with the past. So as a culture then, if I've, because I didn't know the details of that Sumerian myth, that we've actually really been, uh, in psychoanalytic terms, we've, in, we've internalized it and it's become unconscious. That's right, that's right. And there is no feminine. That's right. So how do we find, in a really, uh, balanced, grounded, non-wimpy kind of way, how do we find the feminine? How do we find the feminine? Well, fortunately, we are finding the feminine. Yeah. You know, archaeological research has dug into the earth and found fragments of old goddesses, mm -hmm. and they've put these fragments together and started to piece together an understanding of uh, a, a divine feminine and an order that was quite different than what we have. Now, I'm not suggesting we go back to the Stone Age and live in caves. No. I'm not suggesting that by any means. That was the static feminine, and that was the great mother. That's not the form that is as appropriate right now. But that is giving people a sense that, oh, God, in the God up in the sky was not the only one. Before God yeah. was, there was a goddess. And then there was a goddess and a god together who ruled. And then something happened, and the male overthrew the feminine, which I believe is part of the male development, whether it was good or bad or had to happen that way or didn't have to happen that way. Well, hunter-gatherer, the men had to go out. And the men had to go out and fight. And fight and, and, uh, and defend the territory. And hunt. And, and so, bring the food back to the enclosure. Yeah, and actually in the hunt, killing was essential for the survival of the, of the tribe. But it was done with respect, if I'm not correct. It was done with respect. It was done in a sacred manner. Mm -hmm. And yet when we came into the Neolithic villages and practiced animal husbandry, the role of the hunt declined. Now, they still did oh, it some, right, right. but it was not as major a part. And over the years, over the centuries, over the generations, the sacredness of the hunt started to retreat into ancestral memory. So where did that urge to hunt and kill go? It went underground. And also came out in, in the warrior class. And it came out in the warrior class. And yet, up until recently, we've had, and correct me if I'm wrong, there has been a significant honoring and respect for the enemy. Has that been, is that true? Or maybe I'm 
I think something. that there has been an increased awareness of violence and an increased awareness of the effect of war. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that this country has a lot of respect for the enemy in the war in Iraq right now. No, no. What I meant was in the original momentum out of the hunter-gatherer, um, you would, you know, the enemy would also um, be respected, I suppose, in some way. That was my, my question. Mm -hmm. Was the enemy respected early on? Well, we don't really know. Okay. We don't really know. We do have some evidence that there were war games that they played, one tribe with another, that was sort of like a football game, you know, that was a sport. So they're not taking the, the real essential elements of the society of either group by right. this warfare. Right. You know. But that's not what escalated into warfare. Mm -hmm. You know, skirmishes over land and water as population expanded and resources got more scarce created fighting at the borders, and then that fighting got worse. And you can imagine that if a neighborhood tribe came in and, you know, massacred your village or, you know, wounded some of your people, that the next time you would make yourself ready. You would say, well, the right, next time right. I'm going to have my, my men trained. Right. I'm going to have weapons made for them. We're going to be ready. In fact, we're going to take the men out of their regular civilian life with their wives and their farms, mm -hmm. and we're going to take time to train them so that we don't get beat up next time so mm -hmm. we don't get killed and massacred so through that process virtually everyone had to become militarized mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to support that and that created a militarization of society which we still live in mm -hmm. and that military model was based on the power dynamic that had emerged at the time which is those with more power more personal power and charisma and ability to rule and think and communicate told others what to do. So the kings on top oh, right. had their bureaucrats and their bureaucrats had their merchants and their soldiers and all the way down to the slaves mm -hmm. and that was the pyramid form of hierarchy that is essentially what we are still living in today. Mm -hmm. And it occurred to me at one point with this awareness of a Gaian consciousness coming into the, the dynamic feminine War actually becomes an autoimmune disease. It does. It does. And certainly it's useful to attend in the way the body does. Because I thought about this. I thought, well, okay, if I cut my finger and I get uh, an infection in that, the white blood cells rush to take care of that. Mm -hmm. But they don't keep rushing there after they've done their job. It's, that's right. And but if then, they do, it becomes a cancer. Oh. If they have unlimited growth, it becomes right, a cancer. Right, right. I hadn't thought of that, but that's, that's very true. So, again, coming around to this to say, okay, if there's attacking going on to the, the body, um, then it becomes the autoimmune disease. And how do, you, how do you mitigate that autoimmune disease other than by uh, in expanding the awareness of the whole? Yes, expanding the awareness of the whole and expanding the paradigm from one built on war, which is can be war against a tribe, or it can be war within yourself, war between right, your right, mind and right. your body. Or parts of oneself. I'm sure you work with clients all the time. Who all the time. Have, have, well, a part of me wants to do this, and a part of me wants to do that, and they're fighting, and I can't get any sleep, or what do I do? And so. Yeah, and even our news is presented always as a conflict. It's the war of the sexes. It's the war on poverty. It's the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. And you have a talk show and they have somebody from the extreme of one side and somebody from the extreme of others. 
of the other side so that they battle it out. It's, it's a mindset that we have. It's the major theme in all our movies and novels is some sort of conflict, polarization. some sort of polarization. Yeah, yeah. And I feel that's been the stage that happened when the male broke away from the female and created an antithesis to the basic thesis. Yeah. And that now we are at a stage, finally, having created an antithesis that's equal in strength to the basic thesis, to now have a new synthesis. And the basic thesis is the, is the world mother? The basic thesis is the ground of nature. The ground of nature, okay. The antithesis is moving upwards toward the heaven, away from the body, toward the mind, away from the female, toward the male, into technology, into civilization, into learning and science and all those things that we have developed in this side of the this side of the fence but we've developed it at a cost of losing half the world i was thinking that over the last 15 years we've developed literally a global consciousness in the internet we for have the first just, time in history for the first time in, in in history in the first time in the history of the planet yeah since the planet cooled from you know, it's molten, massive lava. Yeah. So this is really quite remarkable. And this balancing, this synthesis, I think that we didn't still answer the question about the dynamic feminine and how does that come back in, uh, involves not denigrating this masculine and all that it's achieved, but complementing it with an equal dose of feminine and feminine values and all that the feminine represents and brings. And so I call that the dynamic feminine, which is the new social movement kind of emerging. And in part, the old goddess cultures gave women an idea that they were divine, that they didn't have to become masculine in order to be divine, and that the young people are really doing life a different way, you know. They're not dating in the way we used to. They hang out in groups. They, they have, um, you know, their, their events are egalitarian and co-creative and open to freedom and they're artistic and they are taking lots of people and unifying them. Even if it's a concert, they get unified into one, one rhythm, one beat for the evening. They all work together on a project. So... This dynamic feminine, and you see it in our, in our science in that we have nonlinear dynamics yes, and chaos, chaos theory, theory yeah. and quantum physics. That's all, a, that, that's all different than the Newtonian static masculine Absolutely. view. Yep. So that's a way that it's coming up in science. So this dynamic feminine is resurging. You know, Jungian therapy looked at people and said, well, where's your hidden anima? Where's your hidden right. feminine part? Let's bring that up. Yeah. And so there's many, many ways in which we are entering a self-reflective consciousness and pulling the feminine up to complement the masculine. Not to make the masculine wrong or bad. It has achieved wonderful things for us. Things, yeah. You know, you wouldn't be recording this interview if we didn't have the technology right. that has been brought. You wouldn't have been able to get here in your car. Yep. You know? So... Let's thank all this. Even corporations and empire have achieved great things. The trouble is they have not been consecrated to anything sacred. And we did have, there's a couple of points that come up in my mind about that. We had an intimation of our opportunity uh, in the 60s when both you and I were growing up and many of our listeners. And yet also there was a moment for about 
72 hours after 9-11 happened mm -hmm. with that trauma where everybody went, <gasps> and we could have made a very different decision. And we can still do that, though. Yes. We can still do that. I felt that when 9-11 happened, it was an initiatory wound. Mm -hmm. I was already seeing humanity in its adolescence, yeah. and that to get from adolescence to adulthood takes a rite of passage. And I had been studying elements of rites of passage. And a wound is the beginning of a rite of passage. Yeah. In you know the ancient Stone Age cultures, sometimes they lost a finger, or they chipped a tooth, or they scarred themselves, or there was some sort of loss. And that right. when those towers went down, it was like the loss of a digit mm. or two digits. Oh, yeah. And it was a wound that was beginning to wake us up to, from our innocence. You know, the Americans have such an innocence because we have not been attacked on our mainland soil. And that there was an opportunity there to come to the heart. We were talking about the trauma that happened at 9-11 and it, that it was a real wake-up call. Um, and a wake-up call to? To a different way of doing things. And I think that in many people, their hearts were awakened. Mm. There was such an outpouring of giving and solidarity Solidarity among New Yorkers. I went to Ground Zero and saw the altars that had been erected oh, with yeah. the prayers and the artwork and the ribbons and the flowers. And I mean, I could just feel the outpouring of love and people that pitched in and worked together and gave homes to those who were wounded. And I mean, there was a huge movement. And that was at the grassroots level. Now, the next step is to be able to apply that care to those who are more distant or different. You know, we could have taken a completely different approach with Afghanistan at that time, or Iraq. You know, yeah. there was that uh, phrase going around the internet, bomb them with bread, which oh, would have been a lot yes, cheaper that. That, than what we're doing. <laughs> right. Right, right. Same way with the immigration from Mexico, we're talking from the control paradigm of building, spending, you know, huge amounts of money to build a wall between the U.S. and Mexico to keep the immigrants out. No one's saying what's going on in Mexico that these people don't want to stay in their country. Right. What right. can we do to help the Mexican economy? What can we do? I mean, they have a fine country down there. Mm -hmm. You know, the politics are driving, driving them up here. We don't have this problem with Canada. We're not building a wall between us and Canada to keep them out. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, because Canadians are happy in their country. Right. right. Um, right. So it's a different question. We need yeah. to go to the source. We need to go to the root of the problems. But the control paradigm, the power paradigm that we're living in, instead seeks to control a problem rather than to solve it. That's, rather than to heal it. That's still a, a strict father paradigm. And that's I, got, right. I actually got that from a, a talk that I heard George Lakoff do at, uh, in Sausalito. And that's he's, right. he's just come out with a book called Who's Freedom, which is outlining that particular thing, the, the uh, strict father uh, family paradigm versus the nurturing parent. And um, uh, he's got some really interesting things to say about that. But I also had, it occurred to me that the Sumerian myth you talked about in the first part of the show, um, the Christian myth has fit on that just really seamlessly in a, in a way in terms of facilitating the, uh, the stern god of Jehovah 
you know, uh, in that strict father resonance, mm -hmm. and you better do what I say or you're going to get punished because I have to go and do X, Y, Z. Can you talk about, about the myth of Christianity? Yeah. In, in the book, I go into the major myths that shaped our civilization. And so the biblical myth is another myth that mm -hmm. has been a major shaper of the values and the behavior of Western civilization. And I agree with what you say and how the myth has played out in our culture. But if you go back to early Christianity, that was not Christ's teaching. The true... He was very nurturing. He was very nurturing, and he frequented with women and with prostitutes and well, that lepers. Was his, that was whole, his whole deal, was to say, all right, you guys in the temple and the money changers and all that, you guys are exploiting the, are exploiting the poor. Exactly, exactly. And he was, he was really a rebel against the Roman domination. And as a Jew, the Jews had a covenant with the land. And oh, when the right, Romans right, wanted right. the Jews to pay tribute to Rome, which was, you know, hundreds of miles away... You know, they, they rebelled against that, and Jesus mm -hmm. was leading that. And he said, wait a minute, let's, let's, let's collapse this classist society. Mm -hmm. Let's decide that, you know, there is equality between the rich and the poor and the, those who have and those who have not, and men and women, and let's call everybody brothers and sisters and live as one family. I mean, that was truly his myth. But he didn't get to complete it because he was... He, he was, was murdered within murdered. three years of his teaching. And so That's to begin right. to he teach the years. world mm -hmm. about love from the place that they had been in, traumatized by centuries of war, you know, 3,000 years by that point we'd been mm. warring with each other. That's a long time. I mean, Christianity is only 2,000 years old. Right. So it's 1,000 years less and we see what a hold it has. Imagine what it was like to try to preach love into a culture. He didn't write things down. You know, they didn't have the Internet. They didn't have the media that we have now in order to spread a message. So it's really amazing that his message spread so far. Mm -hmm. um, but his message of love and a global humanity was then co-opted by the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was thoroughly, that is the piece that sat on the foundation of the previous Babylonian myth. And you go into some real specificity in the book about how that occurred, actually. Yes, yes. And so the Roman Empire, their talent was law and the ability to oh, enforce it. Right. So at a time when many different cultures who worshiped different gods and spoke different languages and lived different ways were all converging, they were you know, traveling in ships and moving around and converging together, the Romans had a way to get everybody to get along. They said, this is the law. This is going to serve everybody. If you don't follow it, you're dead. Or you're out of mm -hmm. here. And so with that power they actually created a kind of order. And that was the service that the Roman Empire did. But they, like all services, it also occurred at a cost. Then the Christian myth got co-opted by this power paradigm. And that is how it got adapted or, or co-opted by the stern father. Oh. You know, one thing, too, that I wanted to mention that I was, I didn't, I came across the, the part in the book where you talk about uh, Augustine yes. and his suppression of the feminine. Mm -hmm. And I did not know that the original sin that Augustine was talking about was the transmission of semen. I yes. didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. And when I, when I understood that, everything else fell into place mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. about the whole... There's a lot of subtleties that are going on, and I thought it was really ironic 
that Augustine's mother was named Monica in the latest deal with, with Bill Clinton. Oh, Monica Lewinsky. I never <laughs> made that connection. Interesting. But what a yeah. curious thing that, yeah. you know, Monica would yet again be involved with, uh, with, a, with a, a masculine power figure. Yes. Yes. You know, so. Yes. Well, Monica was his mother, and Monica was a Christian, and his father was a pagan. So it really right. wasn't that Augustine denied women. He actually had a pretty lively life up until his conversion. Right. Yeah. He and it wasn't that. really in his heart to deny the feminine, but when he converted to Christianity, he was told to take on this ascetic kind of behavior, and he struggled within himself because he couldn't do it. Yeah. And because he couldn't do it, he decided, well, we don't really have free will, and we must all be tainted with original sin. He was Scorpio, as you And he said. was a Scorpio, yeah. And he actually then, uh, in psychoanalytic terms, projected his shadow outward onto yes. the feminine. Yes, yeah, okay. yeah. And so did the followers of his teachings. Mm -hmm. I mean, Augustine was really a very complex man. He did wonder some wonderful things, right. and, but he also had this little twist in him that was really um, just a, a microcosm of the time between paganism and Christianity and that at that time were kind of battling it out and the old way was dying and the new way was coming in. And that's all second chakra stuff, would uh, you say, or a third? No, not really. I think this was all taking place in a third chakra struggle. Okay. But you see, the Romans saw Christianity as a way to unify the Roman Empire. Gosh, that sounds awfully familiar. It does. You know, Constantine, when he had his dream of the cross in the sky that said, in this sign, thou shalt conquer. And Constantine was a pagan emperor. Oh. He never even received his final rites of baptism until the day he died. But he saw it as a way to unite the Roman Empire under one God and one simple practice. And so there it became. And then as that government spread, it co-opted all the local pagan gods That's right. into the various iterations of, of pagan, I mean, even the Christmas tree is a, a co-option of, of a druidic practice. Right. And Santa Claus is an old Norse myth, and many of the temple, many of the cathedrals were built on old pagan sites, but also many of the old pagan temples were destroyed, and then people were burned at the stake for even mentioning them. So for a thousand years, people were not allowed to think for themselves. So even thought became a crime. They were not allowed to mention the feminine. They were not allowed to worship even, you know, Mary as a deity. Right. Yeah, you talk about this in the yeah. book also. Yeah. And I wanted to mention to our listeners, I'm talking with Anodea Judith, uh, and she's written this book called Waking the Global Heart, Humanity's Rite of Passage from the Love of Power to the Power of Love. In each chapter, you have uh, salient points at the end and a timeline to illustrate and, and provide a real structure for us to go back and refer to, oh, that's when that happened and that's when this happened. And I really found that very useful. But I did want to also go through, there are three sections to your book, Who Are We? And we've been talking about that. And where did we come from? I'd like to talk about where do we go to? And we're right at that point now in the show about how do we transform, how do we, what's next? What do we, we've got a lot of choices ahead of us. And the, the people in control are seemingly bumbling around, but in a way, what George Lakoff has written another article called George Bush Incompetent Like a Fox. Mm. Uh, although some of 
what the strict father paradigm people are doing seems really incongruous yes. in the face of what science is talking to us about. Yes, and yes, and what the people want. And what the people want, yeah. yeah. Um, what's next? What do we do okay. as individuals? Well, many things to say about that, of course. One is a question that I spent a lot of time with as I was writing the book, and that is that if we are outgrowing the old power paradigm, which is what an adolescent does, is they outgrow their parents, then that power paradigm has been holding civilization together for 5,000 years, and everything is oriented along those lines, and we have a very complex civilization. So the question is, if we outgrow that power paradigm, what do we replace it with? What is the next organizing principle? Because we obviously need one for a society as complex as ours. And the answer that I came up with was found in the study of self-organizing systems, which is how nature's been doing it from the beginning of time. Nonlinear dynamical systems or chaos theory. Exactly. So, it's self-organization, isn't it? And self-organization. And so in that light, everything begins to make sense. Because for one thing... As a child becoming an adolescent is outgrowing their parent, the parent falls from grace. The oh, child may yeah. look at their parent at 16 and say, oh my God, my dad's just an idiot. Right. My mother is such a fool. They don't know anything. Now, when a child gets to be 24, he may decide his parents were smarter than he thought they were. Absolutely. But at that stage, there is a falling for grace, from grace that makes that child, that adolescent say, you know, I have to be my own boss. I have to figure it out for myself. Nobody's going to do that for me. And I think that what George Bush and the administration is doing, and I have to even include the Democrats in this, I'm mm -hmm. sorry to say, is destroying people's faith in government. Oh, well, actually, in a very planned and deliberate way, it seems, yeah. by yeah. how effective it is. Yeah, I mean, we're finding that our government doesn't necessarily tell the truth, that our government doesn't protect the environment, that our government is not protecting the national economy. It doesn't even function to save the people who are in such hardship from natural disasters. No, it doesn't. And it doesn't show up when there's natural disasters. It's misspending our money. It's taking us to a war under false causes. I mean, we could go on and on. Right. But so we're finding that Big Daddy at the helm is like an alcoholic father and doesn't have the best interests at heart and isn't a wise ruler. You know, now some people would say he is, but this is my opinion. And adolescents have such a high level of ethical awareness. They do. They do. And so what that's doing, the, absent, the failure of government to take care of the things that are necessary for our future, is it is spawning huge movements that are self-organizing, that are forming environmental organizations, organizations to deal with issues of social justice, organizations to deal with democracy, uh, a different, even the media, which is somewhat controlled. We're now finding that people are, are organizing different ways to put media out there through the Internet, through different organizational principles. And so the self-organizing groups are spawning up all over the planet. And no one is telling these people, go out and join an environmental organization. There's no father figure coming on the news saying, you better sign up, you know, you better get drafted into working for Greenpeace, you know, uh, in the way we draft somebody into the military. People are not doing this because they're told to. They're, being do it, they're, do it, they're joining these organizations and they're working in them because of the calling in their heart. 
They feel a calling to serve something they love, to work towards saving something they love. And they are organizing amongst themselves. So the self-organizing is the new organizing principle. Now, the ability to do that on a global scale is just now dawning on the planet through the Internet. That we have reached our adult size as a planetary civilization. And oil has been our adolescent growth hormone. <laughs> That's that wonderful. has enabled what? us to yeah. be a world organization. Uh-huh. You know, we, we import products from China and we export products to India and we're connected through the World Wide Web and through mm-hmm. media and any news is known instantaneously across the globe, you know. And uh, we've become a planetary civilization. Are we haven't we? worked out all the kinks of that yet. Right. But we have become that. We also haven't run out of oil yet, you know, but a growth hormone has a limited lifespan. So what it's enabled is a society based on networks rather than markets. Oh, yeah. And, and actually the, the Internet uh, providers are scrambling to con- get, in, get the networks in control, but it's too late. It's too late. It's n- it cannot be centrally controlled. Right. Just by the way that it's made, ma- That's made right. up. And that is the next organi- organizing principle that can't be centrally controlled because the old model of a king on top ruling his kingdom of 50,000 people isn't going to work when you have a planet of 7 billion. Right. You're not going to have one person on top who is by any means capable of handling that complexity. And so the Internet is enabling a series of relationships that cut across boundaries of race and class and nationality and geography to harvest the intelligence of the human race, which sometimes I agree is questionable and other times is brilliant. You know, this is such a note of hope. It is. In the huge pool of, uh, or seemingly huge pool that has been marketed of fear Mm-hmm. to the populace. Yes. But I'd also like you know, if you would comment about Rupert Sheldrake's morphic fields, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that in a way these networks are not just technological. They're not just... No, they're not. ...physiological or physical. They're, they're even... They're, they're in a greater sphere than that. Yes. And reflected, they're reflected by the physical. And this is the transition from the Newtonian to the quantum level. Right. Can you talk some more about that? Well, the that? technology is just a tool yeah. for enabling more means of connection, interrelatedness between all the what I call holons in a system or all the agents in a system like you and me and families and countries and corporations and all that. They're all agents in a system. And a holographic system that each part reflects the whole. Exactly. And so the more these agents in the system can relate to each other, the smarter the whole system gets. Just for example, let's say you've got a, an, an ache in your side. And you go to a doctor and the doctor says, oh, you've got trouble with your liver or you might have hepatitis or you've got a tumor or something. You can get on the Internet and you can download all the research that has been done on that disease. Mm -hmm. And when you go to make your decision about how to handle your problem, you're much more informed than anybody ever was even 10 years ago. And actually, some of the the, uh, allopathic choices that used to be available at lower cost are being closed off by the high cost of of medicine, which in a way is not a bad thing. It's forcing people to go to other forms of medicine. It's all really happening as it should. 
-hmm. you know, to divert people's attention from investing in the old way, it's the collapse of the old way to divert people's attention saying, this is too expensive or this doesn't work anymore, you've got to find a new way. And that is actually forcing this paradigm shift. In the same way that running out of oil or having global warming is forcing uh, new technology and hybrid vehicles and perhaps the development of hydrogen fuel cells when that gets going. So these things are forcing the changes that wouldn't happen otherwise. And they're all part of our growing up. Yeah, yeah. We're shedding the old Newtonian, yeah. patriarchal, yeah. strict father right. paradigm. We're even transcending in, in different pockets the economic system. For instance, peer-to-peer -peer networking, oh, yes. which is open source software, yeah. is one of the best examples, is where people are working, contributing for free, just to make something better. And the products that are coming out of that, out of peer-to-peer -peer collaboration that isn't based on monetary reward, are far outperforming what Microsoft can create with their whole empire of employees. And tell us about Black Rock City. And Black Rock City is another pocket where this happens <laughs> that is one of the grandest social experiments on the planet, I, know I think. I you have such a passion for this. I do. And Black Rock City is a place in the middle of the desert, in the middle of nowhere in Nevada, where once a year, for the period of time of, a, of one sole week, 30,000, 40,000 people come together and erect a city and within that city, live by different rules. And one of those rules is no money exchanges hands once you're in the doors. People yeah. do buy a ticket to go, and mm -hmm. that covers infrastructure. Yeah. But nothing that anyone brings to present at Black Rock City is done for monetary reward. So people have newspapers and radio shows, and there's a post office, and people um, you know, produce coffee and all this. And, and it's not done to make money. It's a gifting economy. It's a gifting economy. And what people have discovered is the more you contribute, the more there is for everybody. Mm -hmm. And so what this is creating is a kind of abundance that an ownership society does not create. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, a, a culture of abundance rather than uh, uh, focusing on lack. Yes. The ownership society actually borrows from the future out of fear. It says, I'm afraid for my future, so I'm going to hoard money now and put it in the bank. It's so bizarre. I, I, there was a Native American person who came up to me when I was taking a class at Cabrillo College south of Santa Cruz, and they said, you know, we just don't get it with you white people. How, how can you possibly think that you can own anything? That's right. Yeah. How can we own the air? How can we own the earth? How can we own a tree even? Yes. Yeah. And this myth of ownership really uh, promotes the barricading of I've got to protect my ownership, even at the cost of death of someone else, if I'm going to be defending that, mm -hmm. what a curious thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What an interesting mindset. So, And one of the things that this country was founded on is the protection of private property rights. Mm. Well, we're about to grow out of that, though, I from what so. you're saying. And, yeah. and also for the listeners, Black Rock City, another way that that's known in the culture is the Burning Man yes. celebration. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was actually started on Ocean Beach in San Francisco, mm -hmm. and then it got too big and had to go to Nevada. Mm -hmm. Well, we're in the closing minutes of the show here, and, and I'm really interested to know what your uh, advice is to each of our listeners in terms of embodiment of the uh, dynamic feminine and um, the, uh, to keep that hope alive 
in the face of this huge momentum, it's seeming huge momentum, where you know it comes out of your cable uh, TV set or comes off the uh, uh, the internet or comes out of the uh, the newspapers. Uh, what can we do on a daily or even an hourly basis to facilitate the emergence of the dynamic feminine? Well, what's being broadcast at us all the time is the nightmare, and we need to wake mm-hmm. up from the dream. It's really about awakening. And that awakening comes about through personal work on yourself, as you work through your own illusions and your own wounds, uh, opening the heart. The name of the heart chakra is anahata, Anahata. which means unstruck or unhurt. So that means two things. One is that in order to open the heart, we have to unhurt our wounds. We have to heal our wounds. And as we do, the heart naturally just gets rosier and rosier, you know, as we're not carrying around the grief. And the other thing is we have to uh, not cause harm to others. So refrain from causing harm. We need to look at the world and say, what can we give instead of what we can get? This culture, the present culture, rewards people who go out and get a lot. Look at how much money he made. Let's reward him. Well, the big money makers are the big takers. They're not the big givers, generally speaking. There's a few exceptions, but generally speaking. And so we need to begin rewarding what people give instead of what they take and to practice generosity whenever possible. Uh, We need to practice forgiveness and compassion. We need to develop clear communication so that we can communicate through our difficulties instead of fight through our difficulties. And that would even occur on a national level through peace negotiations rather than military might. But all of this can only happen if each person takes personal responsibility to clear and heal their own wounds. Yes. And that comes right back to what we were talking about at the beginning. Yes. This is some of the gift that you bring to us. Yes. Is about the value of of self-healing so that as a healed person, I can approach someone who is still in fear and say, you know, it's, it looks really bad, but it's going to be okay. Yeah, yeah. About fear, I say scared is what happens when the sacred gets scrambled. Oh, that's nice. That's so nice. when we're afraid, then we have lost our sacred ground. But this idea of working on ourselves and yet not getting caught in that narcissism but serving something larger, the metaphor I like to use for that is that of an orchestra. If you have a really good orchestra, every one of those instrumentalists has spent time alone practicing and honing their ability to play their instrument. And then they come into the orchestra and they come together to create something larger. And in that creation of something larger, the flutes don't try to sound like a cello. The flutes sound like flutes. They are being exactly what they are, playing to the ability that they have honed within themselves. And the cellos sound like cellos, and the drums sound like drums. And each contributes. And each contributes. So it's not about losing our individuality. It's about taking our individuality to the highest level, which is to be exactly that in the dance, in the symphony of something larger. Mm-hmm. Well, on these notes, we have to stop. Um, and uh, would you give your website contact again? Yes, it's wakingtheglobalheart.com. And the other website that is about my chakra work and personal healing work is sacredcenters.com. C-E-N-T-E-R-S, Sacred Centers. Great. Well, thank you so much for talking with us. I've been talking with my guest, Anodea Judith, and she's written a book called Waking the Global Heart. 
humanity's rite of passage from the love of power to the power of love. Thanks for listening. I'm Anthony Wright, and I've been your host today on Attunement, and see you next time.